So welcome everybody to Creative On Purpose Live. So this is a show about flying higher and endeavors that make a difference. Step into possibility with integrity and intention. It's time to be Creative On Purpose. Are you ready? Let's go. This season features the Ruckus Makers Roundtables. Say that five times fast. Conversations about questions that matter with friends and fellow travelers from Forward Link, an alumni community from Seth Godin's Alt MBA and Akimba Workshops. I'm your host, Scott Perry, Chief Difference Maker at Creative On Purpose and author of Endeavor. I'm an Alt MBA 6 alum and I'm the head coach team for Akimba Workshops. Learn more about me and my work at creativeonpurpose.com. Today, I'm joined by my friends Nadine Kelly and David Bowman to discuss, is the pursuit of happiness worth it? This should be able to be a five-minute conversation. Nadine and David, before we dive into today's discussion, please introduce yourselves to our viewers. Uh, who are you? Which programs have you been a student in? What are you up to these days? And where can people go to learn more about you and your work? This always seems like a very simple question, but I'll try to keep it very short. <laughs> so first of all, thank you very much, Scott, for having me. Uh, I'm so happy to be here with you and David today to have this uh, juicy discussion. So I'm Nadine Kelly, I'm the Yogi MD. I have taken several of uh, Seth's Akimbo workshops. I took the original podcast fellowship and I will be a coach in the podcast fellowship number five coming up here pretty soon. I have also taken the marketer seminar uh, number eight and the freelancers workshop number six. I am a retired physician, a podcaster. My show is the Yogi MD podcast. I am a health coach, a certified, and I am a yoga instructor to wise women. Fantastic. Go ahead, David. That's a lot. Okay, mine's much simpler. I'm David Bowman. Um, I was in grad school for a long time. I did the Alt-MBA. I love that. And um, right now, I do private equity in New York City. And I also run a website, well, community called Project Mindfulness, which is a meditation spirituality community online. That's it. Simple. Fantastic. Well, we're here to discuss um, this fairly simple question. Is the pursuit of happiness worth it? So before we um, start to answer the question, I'm wondering if we shouldn't just start to frame exactly what we mean by these terms, happiness and pursuit. So Nadine um, drew the short straw because she raised her hand first. So she's going to kick us off. Go ahead, Nadine. That is a great way to introduce this. And it was a point I really wanted to start with. Really, what do we mean by the word happiness and the word pursuit? Uh, the word pursuit to me is very harsh. It's very active. And it, it, it's not just not, it is simply not gentle. It's not a gentle way to put it. And what do we mean by happiness? I think being so connected in social media right now, there's always this sense of pressure to appear happy. Everyone mm -hmm. has to be happy all of the time. And even when we ask each other the simple question, how are you? There's always a, a, an expectation to be superficially joyful at all times. And we almost seem to think too in our society that happiness is something that we deserve and we should have it all of the time. So lately, as I'm getting older and wiser myself, I've been thinking about the word happiness in terms of something more realistic, contentment, satisfaction, um, a sense of purpose, 
a sense of joy when we need to have joy, a sense of really honoring our other emotions and honoring the fact that we are multifaceted and it's okay not to have the perfect face all of the time. And it's okay not to be completely satisfied with where we are either. Um, and pers the pursuit of happiness got me into a little bit of trouble, to be quite frank, um, because I'm firstborn generation of Haitian immigrant parents and they were not college educated since I was the firstborn and I didn't really have any role models here. I felt this pressure to pursue what I thought would be happiness in the perfect life, which was to be educated with a title, with the picket fence and the 2.5 kids and dog and all of that. And the, where I got into trouble, while I have no regrets with what I did, the path I took, the trouble was focusing on an external or all external uh, goals rather than making sure that what was going on internally matched what I was putting out on the outside. So I think I would advise nowadays, probably to my younger self and to anyone who's thinking about a career path or whatever, is to make sure that what's going on internally is more important than what's happening on the outside because that's secondary. Mm. Love it. All right, David, you're up. <laughs> you know, so when I think of happiness, I think of it kind of in different ways. So there's the psychological state of being happy. This is kind of a, a short-term placeholder. But then I also think of happiness kind of as a long-term concept. Like for example, Roger Federer is a tennis player. He's currently ranked number three in the world. And for a long period of time, he's ranked number one. And at some point in the future, he probably won't be ranked anywhere in the top 100. But everyone would agree that Roger Federer is a good tennis player, no matter where he ranks. But day to day, he may play good tennis and he may play bad tennis, right? But everyone agrees that he is a good tennis player. Mm -hmm. I think happiness is the same thing. You need not be happy each and every day to be a happy person. Um, happiness is, that's why we use the word pursuit. Pursuit meaning it's something you chase over time. There's no momentary pursuit. It's a pursuit because it's something that we constantly tail. So when I think of happiness, I think of it not just as a psychological state that we attempt to achieve at a moment-to-moment -moment basis. I think about it as a long-term attempt for self-actualization of internal goals. And that should sometimes, maybe you're an artist or you're a philosopher, you're a scientist, whatever your profession may be, most people are willing to suffer tremendously mm -hmm. for the pursuit of long-term happiness because most people understand that the long-term outweighs the short-term. So when concerning, should I make such a choice for my happiness? The question generally would be, is, is this a long-term happiness question or a short-term happiness question? And then you have to take on those calculations. That, that's really? kind of how I think of happiness. Yeah, really fascinating. It, it's, it's a tricky term. And I think you could go from culture to culture and people would define differently what, what that state is that kind of David was um, sussing out the difference between, you know, the, this short term or this very ephemeral temporary state of glee and this longer, more sustainable um, feeling of flourishing, fulfillment, 
joy, what have you. I was, one of the reasons why this question made the list of topics was I had just been reading David Brooks' book, The Second Mountain, and he distinguishes between happiness and joy and says that, you know, the first half of your life is often the pursuit of happiness in terms of societal expectations. The big house, the nice job, the car, college education, all these things. And, but that, that phase of life is fairly self-interested and, and in some ways selfish. And all of those um, moments of happiness are fairly ephemeral and temporary where the second half of a person's life oftentimes or can be in the pursuit of deeper satisfactions that are more aligned with this idea of joy and not self-interest, but actually thinking about what you can contribute. And that made a little bit more sense um, to me. And I, 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 I associate, for me, the pursuit is really uh, equanimity. I want to I want to feel a general sense of well-being and fulfillment and flourishing despite any outcomes or a situation that I happen to find myself in. And so if I'm, you know, if I if I get a win, I should certainly celebrate that and enjoy that for the moment, but it's not of a reflection of who I am or how successful I am. And by the same token, if I fail, it's not a reflection of who I am or how quote unquote successful I am and I can you know there will be dips and and um uh peaks but you know for the most part I'm just trying to, to keep an even keel and keep doing the work that I want to do which is to to bring that sense of flourishing and fulfillment not just to myself but to my family and, and to the people that I work with. So I'm not sure that we've answered the question what do we mean by happiness? <laughs> Well, you raised an interesting you, you raised an interesting question. You mentioned the, a book who, who points out something that that's factual that people spend generally their first half of their life or a lot their first part of their life, let's say, kind of living up to external standards, and the second half like trying to find internal standards. And I I don't think this is necessarily because we are programmed to be external standard machines. It's just that that's the way society is. And it takes a while to figure out who you are. You're not born into the earth saying, this is all the things I have to do. You whittle away piece by piece until you discover who you are. And it's only then can you actually pursue this kind of authentic sense of meaning, long-term happiness. But when you're a child, you have no chance because you're, you're completely unaware of what the actual pursuit is for hmm. because it's a different individual by individual, right? My thoughts on that, based on my own experience, and then when I became a mother and wanting to improve the circumstances for my girls, was to bring to light or shed to light that it's not just about success, whatever that looks like for you, in terms of serving your purpose and feeling like you're making a real contribution to the world, but it's also about, is that a true expression of, of who you are? And so for my girls, I really insisted as they were both growing up that they were allowed to be and could fully embrace not only for themselves, but also to express who they really were so that that as internal, as I mentioned before, that internal narrative didn't clash with what was going on externally. So mm -hmm. that maybe joy could be 
attained earlier in life. Can I ask a question to you, Nadine? Absolutely. So I, I was thinking about this earlier, and I was trying to understand to what extent do we separate happiness and ethics, meaning like what is right and what's wrong. I was thinking of the case of generally in this question, people think about Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan most likely lived a very, very happy life. His perception of the world was that he needs to combine all the tribes of his people because they're just ruthlessly murdering one another. And so his solution was to ruthlessly murder everyone and bring people together. But when we look back at Genghis Khan, he most likely was a very, very happy individual and all the history seems to say so, but he was also someone who greatly clashed with the external environment of what is right and what's wrong. So I wonder to what extent we should separate the concept of ethical morality and happiness. And I mean, not to say that we should be immoral individuals, but just to say, maybe we shouldn't define the two terms together. That is really fascinating because that was part of the, so there's two threads that I'd like to pull on. One is that the, 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 the term purpose has come up a couple times and I wanted to stick a pin in that to save it for later. But I love David, this idea that you're bringing in um, because what a, a lot of what the, the discussion around what is, what is happiness involves value judgments what's good and what's bad. And value judgments um, are subjective, personal, based on beliefs and experience. And, um, and value judgments can get us into a lot of trouble because you know, we tend to continue to believe what we already believe and we tend to um, demonize or you know, antagonize the people that believe things you know, differently to us, which is an enemy to our happiness, to our, our at least our tranquility and equanimity. So, um, so you you are both familiar with with my philosophical disposition, which is Stoicism, which says that the only good is virtue, is the content of your the content and quality of your character, and the pursuit of virtue is um, is what happiness and and what leads to equanimity. Um, that certainly has worked for me in terms of helping me be less, you know, all the things that are definitely opposed to happiness, like anger, frustration, jealousy, um, and, and that sort of thing. I'm not sh convinced that it's, it's the only answer, but it's, it's been part of the answer for me. Um, and so, and then when we were talking about pursuit, we're really talking in part about purpose. So can I pose the same question I posed to Nadine to you concerning Stoicism? Sure. So the, the, the question here, really the high level question is, how do we determine what's right and wrong? And if we cannot objectively determine what's right and wrong, what place does it play within happiness? Like the question which I asked Nadine is, how do we understand what's right or wrong? Like, how do we raise children? Like, there's children here, there's children in Iran, and we teach, each side teaches people different things, and they seem to hate each other without cause. Neither is right, neither is wrong. It's just external beliefs that cause what they believe to make them happy. So if we can ob objectively determine what is correct, how can that relate to happiness? Now, that's the same question to you, Scott, concerning virtue. See, the Stoics, they were religious, so they believed that virtue came from God and that it could be determined through natural law, that you see animals clean themselves, and so too it's virtuous for us to clean ourselves um, for things like this. 
But the truth is that that is a subjective religious argument. In the case of Stoicism, how do we know what is objectively virtuous? And if we cannot determine what is objectively virtuous, how can we be assured that it actually makes us happy? And if it does, is happiness then completely subjective? In which case it's an individual pursuit and not something that we can discuss with others specifically. Yeah, so there's there's a lot in that simple question. Yes. And the first and the first part I would say is that um, people can people have certainly argued that Stoic has a, a spiritual or religious component. I am of the conviction that um, Stoicism is is more correctly viewed as a secular practice, a philosophical discipline rather than a spiritual one. Um, and the, this pursuit of virtue or, is all uh, wrapped up in a word um, called arete, which it, in the Greek, which again defies perfect translation, but we're talking about um, excellence, of, uh, excellence of character or human excellence. And so for the Stoics, it's all based on two premises. The Stoics correctly identified that some two of the defining characteristics of being human is that we are born with the capacity for reason and that we are also inherently social creatures. And therefore our duty and what in the pursuit of virtue is to develop both of those things in service of each other to become more reasonable by also at the same time making sure that what we think and do serves not just ourselves but serves human flourishing in the broader sense not just this human flourishing so again but then to your point on subjectivity that's just you know that is it, it is a subjective belief that some people align with and other people do not and so the last thing I'll say, because there, there's a lot, and I'm going to have to leave some of your question on the table, but um, for, for the Stoics, the all external things, which are, is anything that you do not control, and that's everything except for your, your thoughts and your actions. Those are the things that are within your ability to control. Everything else is an external and that therefore everything else is an indifferent. That means that it's neither good nor bad. And that as human beings, we might have preferred and dispreferred indifference. Like it's nice to be healthy and it's, it's, you know, okay to be healthy and it may be a challenging to be unhealthy, but it's neither good nor bad. It's just, it, it is as it is. That's the situation which speaks to the question earlier, like if you can just frame things from that objective, valueless perspective, you have a better chance of not letting a situation or circumstance impact your your happiness. And now I'm going to turn it over to Nadine because I'm out of breath. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a lot. What came to mind, and, and I guess this is the way I've always thought about it and the way I raised my kids, was that your happiness can't circumvent those of the people around you, that the happiness of the other people around you, um, simply because we're, how does the society function if we don't have some sort of order and you don't know that there are moments where you have to compromise? I'm not 100% happy when I'm with my family because 
there may be certain things that I want or I, I certain certain circumstances I wish I could change, but there are three other people to consider in the household. And so that's kind of the lens that I've used that sometimes your happiness does have to be compromised for others. Mm. That makes sense, right? Maybe we're not always allowed to be happy all the time, right? No. Happiness well, is a compromise that we make with society. And yes. you spoke earlier, David, about this idea that sometimes the things that make us happy are the pursuit of that involves some suffering because the things that are worth it are challenging and there will be obstacles and misfortunes and failures. And sometimes the world and other people will ignore our pursuits and that can impact our state of being. Um, and this to me ties to what both of you, both of you have as part of what you do, uh, a practice that involves mindfulness and presence and, you know, being in the moment. Um, and so I'm wondering what your thoughts in each of your disciplines, maybe, um, you know, what, what role does that, you know, mindfulness uh, and presence and maybe acceptance as well? How does that play into this discussion of well-being that for, for the moment defining as happiness. I think being mindful and having a mindful practice or having a mindful mindset means that you allow yourself to become more aware of what's happening in the moment between you and the other person. If you need to make any adjustments, how you need to respond, it allows room for empathy for, for sure, if you're pausing and really listening and really paying attention to what's happening in the moment, it allows you to be a more flexible person in your thinking because then, again, as I just mentioned, adjusting, you can make those adjustments to figure out, is this the correct thing to say in this moment? Do I need to speak in this moment? Do I need to take a step back? Am I self-serving in this moment? with my reaction? Am I responding? Those are some of the ways that I think about a mindful practice and being more aware in the present moment have helped me to better serve myself and the people around me as well. That's awesome. Um, my individual practice, so what I teach at Project Mindfulness or what I do at other things is Meditation. Um, I come from a Kabbalistic school of meditation, but I've, I've studied, you know, Theravada, Hindu, Christian, etc. It's all generally teaching the same stuff using different words. And I like the, the Buddhist language the best, probably because it's the most academic, meaning they've thought things thoroughly without really intention to become overly esoteric. Mm -hmm. And they have three central characteristics of sensations, meaning what you experience moment to moment. And it's that those sensations come and go they're not you and they're unsatisfactory. And when you meditate upon these things, you notice that because sensations come and go, they're created and they're destroyed, that there is necessarily no past to be afraid of or anxiety for it to come from. And there's no fear or anxiety to come from the future as well. And because sensations also are not you, there is no object for which to become angry or to become happy or to become sad. And regarding sensations unsatisfactoriness, it's that they lack moral qualities whatsoever. 
that when we say something is good or bad, it's our failed attempt to objectify subjective objects. They say this is good and that is bad, but truthfully sensations are just sensations. They come and they go, they're not us. We can't define them and they're unsatisfactory. Mm -hmm. So in my practice, what I would probably say at a high level is that there is no self which becomes happy and that the purpose of life is not to become happy and it doesn't matter. And the moment that you say I am happy is the moment that you are deceiving yourself and believing that there is a self to become happy. Um, instead, I think you just have to live moment to moment and do your best. In which case, these things like happiness, like look at history, there was Sparta. Sparta pretty much owned the entire world for a very short period and they didn't raise their children to be happy. They, but the children weren't dissatisfied. They were content with their lives because they were being raised in a certain way, and they believe that's the way that you should be raised. They believed other people were inferior, etc. The point being is that we can accept all types of subjective philosophies, and we can call it happy or sad or whatever it may be. But in order to find meaning, I think it's important not to deceive ourselves. So that's that's my individual practice. That there's things come and go. They're not us. They're unsatisfactory. There's no happiness to pursue, but that doesn't matter because you can still achieve great things for yourself mm -hmm. and others. It's always amazing to me how much Stoicism and Buddhism align, um, despite the fact that they were separated <laughs> by a great deal of space. Um, Similar conclusions, mm -hmm. different process. Um, well, and not always, I mean, so mindfulness is, you know, what Stoic mindfulness is, is about is not, and, and I'm, much more familiar with Stoicism than Buddhism, but I mean, part a lot of this idea of suffering and and an ending of suffering has to do with attachment and attachment to 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 desire or more specifically desired outcomes, desired results, and this is why I think our question is so problematic because the pursuit of happiness means that the aim the intention the goal of life is happiness and if that is your goal you are probably um resigned you're you're probably going to end up um being dissatisfied because number one the things that we usually associate with happiness um are not the means of happiness you know so so many times i work with people that are successful professionals, doctors, lawyers, accountants, whatever, who are deeply dissatisfied and unhappy in their lives, despite <laughs> the fact that they have everything that they were told is worth pursuing. Yes. Um, so to me, you know, that's the, that's the, the interesting thing here is, you know, is, is this, um, practice that we all have in one way, shape, or form of uh, eliminating the self, uh, um, divesting ourselves from unhealthy attachments, and being at peace with the current situation, the present moment, and, you know, taking things as they are and as they come, um, you know, speaking to a true, a truer or a a less subjective um, form of happiness. 
Well, I think you said a really powerful sentence, which is that it, it, it's almost confusing at f- first. How do we pursue detachment? Right. When we think pursuit, we think <laughs> attachment. Right. I pursue to achieve. I pursue to accomplish. I pursue to gather, collect, whatever. But in this case, what you've just said is that the pursuit of happiness is none of those things. The pursuit of happiness is actually to detach in, in, in your particular case. But you can still pursue such a things like ask anyone who's in an unhealthy relationship. They pursue leaving that relationship or whether it's a position, a job. Um, romantic, familial, whatever it may be, people pursue detachment all the time in the real world. Mm-hmm. But because of the external environment, we're constantly asked to chase and pursue certain things by collecting and gathering that almost seems, count. it's very counterintuitive to, pers- to pursue detachment. But I thought that was a very clever sentence you said. Thank you. What do you think, Nadine? I think to both of your points, it's it's societal, right? To always be pursuing something. There's a lot of couched language, even things like no pain, no gain. We're always chasing something. We're always um, deterred from stopping and thinking. And to your point, David, earlier, one of my beloved yoga teachers said it very simply. I remember it was a very impactful moment. We were in relaxation and she said, you are not your emotions. Mm. That has really stayed with me because everything is, um, nothing lasts. There's no such thing. This is another thing that I had to learn. Um, it's a hard lesson in my life. There's no such thing as stability. There's no such thing as safety. Nothing lasts. So, you know, those are some of the things that I've been thinking about lately too. I want to piggyback on that because what I think you, what you said is very interesting. Like your yoga instructor said, you are not your emotions. The golden rule for not self in Buddhism. No, I'm not a Buddhist, but I, I like the Buddhist terminology, but the golden rule for not self is if you can observe it, it's not you. So it's not only are you not stability, not only are you not financial success, not only are you not your emotions, but you are also not your desire for these things as well, right? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of a higher level of viewing these things that we think that we must pursue the things that we desire because we define ourselves by our defire, desires, etc. And sometimes this is fine. I mean, some people desire incredible things and they accomplish incredible things, but sometimes people desire things which are not so incredible for themselves. I live in Manhattan. I know so many people that work 80 to 100 hours a week mm-hmm. that hate themselves and hate their lives but they think they desire such a thing. And it's their own belief that they identify with these desires that leads them to their unhappiness. Or do you think that sometimes people think they don't have a choice, but to believe that, that they must want these things, that they have to chase these things? I think that's a consequence of the former. I think that they justify these beliefs to themselves that they believe that they need them, but these people can easily go anywhere. Like I, I'm not, you know, financially exceptional, but I could go move to some island north of Australia and retire indefinitely and probably live an incredibly happy life, whatever that means. But, <laughs> and most people here in New York City can. I mean, you have to, you, it's just very expensive to live here. So they financially most likely could, but they have ingrained within themselves these desires and then they justify it to themselves. 
I think that that is further attachment, not not an extent of detachment. There's, I actually posted something on social media today. I, I very rarely do this, but I quote it myself. <laughs> and it speaks to what we're talking about here, which is the, the quote is, choose your story, choose your future. And when we're talking about decisions and choices, we are way, way deep in the weeds of, of storytelling, which is what human beings, this is how we may always have made sense of the world and how we have always communicated. We are, um, you know, speaking to Nate's point, sharing beliefs and those beliefs, you know, can lead to emotions, um, you know, that we may or may not, you know, we are often attached to, even though, um, you know, we have some capacity, but the, again, all those, we're speaking to, to, to all these things that are choices. And so, yes, somebody may feel that they have to do this, but that's a story because you don't have to do it. And that's, it sounds simple, but simple is never easy because yes, it is e simple to change your mind, to, to change the story that you tell yourself, but it's not easy because you're telling yourself that story based on long experience on cultural prerogative, societal prerogative, um, and, and many other things. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's, I think someone justifying this to themselves saying, I secretly desire to work 80 to a hundred hours a week at a law firm in New York city. I mean, maybe there are some people that authentically do this, but quite a few people I think instead have desired the short-term happiness of believing some internal lie versus dealing with the long-term happiness of making different choices. Mm -hmm. So it's much harder to become a different person, but it's much, much easier to say that you're happy the way you are. Okay. I, I understand what you're saying, David. Recently, I've been watching, I don't know if you're both familiar with Henry Louis Gates show, the, uh, you know, where he does the genealogy, where he, okay, so he mm -hmm. is finding your roots. Okay. So it's a common thread that I've been noticing with these guests. He has different guests, different walks of life but usually celebrity. And a lot of these people have achieved something that was true to how they were, true to themselves, true to their character. But what I've noticed is that a few of them have said, I credit being able to be myself and to pursue this thing that was not like anything happening around me, None of the other family was this way. None of our friends were doing this. I wanted to do this thing. I was supported by a parent or a grandmother, a grandfather. So I think it's difficult if you're having this internal struggle and you're alone not to give in, to cave in, versus if you do have that beam, that of that beam of light, that pillar who can say to you, it is okay that you feel this way and you need to take a different path and you don't have to settle to be happy mm -hmm. because you're doing the same thing everyone else is doing around you. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's so hard. You either need incredibly empathetic people around you or you're a complete outlier and get very fortunate. But like the book that Scott mentioned above, most people spend the first half of their life discovering themselves because it's very hard for other people to help you discover yourselves, which because they would most likely have had to have discovered themselves already in order to teach others. So I think 
that it's those people who are incredibly themselves in their twenties and thirties, those are people that had a lot of support around them or they got very, very fortunate. Yeah. Well, you just touched both on something that I think is, is, is a really important part of um, what it means to be truly happy. And that is gratitude. You know, what I'm hearing from what you were sharing Nadine is, you know, these people recognize that there was somebody in their early life that helped them, you know, see possibility that was worth stepping into. And yes, it's challenging for anybody that, you know, that doesn't have those kind of figures in their early life to overcome that obstacle and become more equanimous or happier, flourishing or whatever. But it, it appears from a lot of the science and the psychology that a practice of gratitude can be immensely helpful. And it's not just gratitude for the simple pleasures and conveniences that you have, but you can, you can be grateful for the challenges that help build you or reveal to you the things that you need to see oh, so yeah. that you can start to step in the pot. And it's, again, we're talking about stuff that's not necessarily easy, um, but it is available. And so we have the choice, you know, the choice to continue doing things the way that we've always done them. And let's face it, as human beings, I think we are, that's our default setting. We love to just, you know, we just want everything to stay the same because we understand it. We know where we stand. We know it's expected and it can always get worse. So don't rock the boat. And then there are some that want to pursue a, a, a you know, an elevated path. And there's some that, you know, will, will, Derive some sort of pleasure from um, lowering their 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 uh, their position. So we are nearing the end, uh, uh, and I'm not sure that we have a great deal more clarity <laughs> on is the pursuit of happiness worth it. But um, what a fantastic discussion! I'd love for each of us to just kind of wrap up with um, either a closing question or a, an essential takeaway or a, a final um, a final. Uh, point to contemplate or, or, or to share about, about this question. I think that means you, Nadine. <laughs> I have a siren outside. Okay. Ooh, this is so difficult. It's just oh. such a complicated question. Um, I would say that increasing your awareness and maybe finding someone who can support you to do that will help you to be better off. I don't know if that's, I don't know. It's, it's such a hard thing to wrap up. Um, I guess in a paragraph, I'd say, I have this belief that we are born our authentic selves that throughout life, that we are surrounded by other people that shape and mold us incorrectly. Not, not purposely with intention to harm, but with intention to protect. And that as we grow older, we need to reshape and remold ourselves into who we are. And once we discover who our authentic selves are, we should pursue that with full vigor. And when we achieve that, we can then help others. Mm -hmm. I think that happiness is a consequence of attempting to become authentic and attempting to find who you are. And ultimately, happiness comes from being also to help others. I think it's not terribly more complicated than that. 
it's just hard to do. Easy Stoke, to say. The Stokes would agree with you, David. You <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna conclude with um, one of my favorite metaphors from and it's the from the Hindu tradition and um, other um, Asian spiritual and philosophical traditions, but also with the Stoics, and that's the, the archer metaphor. What we are, a lot of what we were talking about when we were talking about pursuit is, is where are we setting our aim and, you know, where are we firing, you know, where are we pointed at, where are we directing ourselves to? And we often think that our happiness and, um, and that success is tied to hitting the bullseye of whatever that target is. And what the Hindus and the Stoics and the, and, and the Taoists and others suggest is that the, the, tar, the bullseye is beyond our control. We may or may not hit the bullseye for a variety of reasons that um, are beyond our control. We do control our preparation and we do control our aim and we do control the release of the arrow. And it's therefore the effort that is the reward, not the end that we intend. And that by putting forth our best effort and accepting the results intended or unintended as they come with some degree of you know, objective equanimity, we can, um, what the Sokers would say, the, the true purpose of life, which is live in accord with nature, human nature and the nature of all human beings and the nature of all things and the nature of the cosmos, which is really what the divine is for um, most of the Stoics, at least that I have followed. So um, the effort is the reward, but doesn't mean you shouldn't aim <laughs> and have fun. It's that simple. Yeah, that's it. Well, we did it. We solved the, We solved this question. Is the pursuit of happiness worth it? Or at least we hopefully have... Um, have opened up a can of worms that you can continue to, to noodle on there. We really, uh, you know, for those of you that are tuning in now or in replay, we deeply appreciate the time and attention that you've lent to listen, listening to us have this conversation, but we encourage you to continue this conversation amongst yourselves as well. These are the questions that are, we think worth asking David and Nadine. I couldn't be, um, you know, more thrilled to have spent this 45 minutes with you. This was a fa fascinating conversation. I wish uh, we could continue it forever, but we, we can always gather, uh, gather again to uh, follow up. But thank you so much for all of your time and, and uh, your, your wisdom. Yeah. Would having this conversation forever truly make you happy though, Scott? You're probably <laughs> correct. You're, you're uh, correct. I, I, I need to be more intentional about where I set my aim. <laughs> I'll try to do better on that. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Blessings. Blessings.